Hello, everybody. This is Nels Davis, and you're listening to All the Responsibility, None of the Authority, episode number 54. This is a podcast for product managers, product marketers, innovators, entrepreneurs about finding market problems, working with development and engineering teams to create amazing solutions, taking those solutions to market successfully, and a lot of critical business skills for anybody who's working on these kinds of projects, things like persuasion and influence and how to manage yourself and how to maintain and manage your cognitive capacity. So in this episode, I'm going to talk about how to manage all the stuff that we have to do as product managers. Well, there's so much we could do. And in fact, we don't have time to do all the things we would like to do. So you have to know where to apply your leverage, how to really prioritize the amount of time that you invest. So you've heard about the 80-20 rule. That's the idea that there's sort of 20% of effort you can apply to get 80% of the value. Well, one way to think about the 80-20 rule is a, a different concept that I'll talk about in a little bit called the minimum effective dose. What is the minimum effective dose of product management? And there's various contexts where you might want to think about that. And what are some other minimums that we can think about in relation to product management that can help us be more effective, more successful, and create more value faster? Well, we'll explore all that in a moment. But let me remind you that you can find the notes for this episode at alltheresponsibility.com slash 54. And on that page, there's a link to give the episode a quick rating at ratethispodcast.com slash product, which I would appreciate a great deal. Fire. Four, three, two, one. We have ignition. The minimum effective dose is a concept that comes from a book by Tim Ferriss called The 4-Hour Body. Now, you might know Tim Ferriss. He's most well-known at this point for his podcast, but of course, he's written several best-selling books, at least four or five. The first one was called The 4-Hour Work Week, which is a great book. It's very inspiring, although most people, it turns out in reality, can't really have 4-Hour Work Weeks, much as we would like. He followed that with The 4-Hour Body, a really good and interesting book focused on fitness and health more your personal well-being, whereas the four-hour work week was focused on your income and lifestyle. Both books can kind of change the way you think about things like income and entrepreneurship and fitness and health. In the four-hour body, one of his most important concepts, or one that I took away and thought was very important, is what he calls the minimum effective dose. What's the smallest amount of work, treatment, activity you need to do to get most of the benefit? For example, if you want to build muscle, you can devote a lot of time to like a bodybuilder's regime and eventually get your body to an amazing state. But it turns out that to get kind of an 80% of a bodybuilder state, you become very strong, you become very fit, your body changes shape in a noticeable way, but you aren't ready to compete. It turns out to take a much, much less punishing, less time-consuming, and less rigid regime than the bodybuilder has to go through. Like, it's a lot less. So applying the same idea to product management, we want to think about, so this is kind of a thought experiment as much as anything, how much do we really need in terms of structures or in terms of activities to be able to make some effective changes as product managers? In other words, what's the minimum you can do to get the effect that you want? Or as I mentioned, I like to think of it in terms of how much do I have to do to get 80% of the, of the total effect that I could get? And sometimes 80% is enough versus perfection. What's the least you can do for the most effect? So Ferris came up with this idea, I'm not sure he invented it, from medicine and sports physiology. And I mentioned the idea of the 80% bodybuilding. It also happens with things like medications and supplements. 
If you take a certain dose, you get the effect. If you take any more, the effect doesn't change. You've already gotten the full effect. In some cases, maybe there's a problem. You know, for example, if you think about vitamin D, you can go out in the sun for 15 minutes a day or into the daylight for 15 minutes a day, and your skin will make enough vitamin D for you. I mean, unless you have a serious condition related to vitamin D, that's a rule of thumb if you live in a temperate climate. If you go out in the sun for longer than that, there's no reason not to, except it's not going to help you get more vitamin D. Your body has made as much vitamin D as it needs in 15 minutes. Now, you can also overdose on vitamin D. You can't do that by going out in the sun, but you can do it by taking supplements. And that's the flip side of this minimum effective dose idea. You have either the 80% idea, what, what is the minimum I need to do, or what is the amount of activity I need to do to get to the 80% result, and you also have this other idea of more is not better. I can do a certain amount and I get really everything I'm going to get from the treatment. So let's now apply this idea of the minimum effective dose to product management, since that's why we're here. And there's a few good examples. I think actually some of the practices that we're starting to do in Agile and other areas of software product development are kind of examples of the minimum effective dose. For example, you can maybe think of stack ranking your feature backlog as kind of a way to implement the minimum effective dose of features I need to think about right now. Constantly paying attention to your whole backlog all the time is kind of like doing that bodybuilder's workout, the hard one. Even if you have no plans to go into bodybuilding, it's kind of a huge waste of time. And so the minimum effective dose is, let me focus on the features that I can deliver in the next month or the next quarter, and I'll forget about all the features that just aren't going to make it, and I'm going to remove those from my cognitive load. And that's a way to achieve a minimum effective dose of features. Another good example, again, something that's becoming more and more common nowadays in, in software companies, are two things that are related to roadmaps. The first one is the idea of the now, next, later roadmap, where you talk in some level of detail about what you're planning to deliver right away. That's the now portion. You use much less, de you use much less detail about items that are in the near term but not coming immediately, and then maybe bullet points or tweets about the ideas and themes that you're looking at for later. So that's the now, next, later roadmap. I'll put a link in the show notes to an article about the now, next, later roadmap concept and how to build one. A related innovation in roadmaps is the theme-based roadmap. Instead of going into great detail about the features you're delivering with all the attendant risk that entails and unintended expectation setting, you focus on the themes of the work you're planning to deliver and often these two ideas are used in conjunction, the now, next, later roadmap and the theme-based roadmap. The less risky an upcoming feature is, which usually means you're nearly ready to deliver it, the more detail you can provide. And for things where there's a lot more risk, you provide a lot less detail. You think about things just in terms of themes. I'll also link to an article that I wrote about roadmaps that you might find interesting and that kind of goes more into some of these ideas. But I also have another sort of richer and longer example of how to think about the minimum effective dose of product management. And so let's go on a little boat trip, and you'll see why I say that in a minute. So first of all, a reminder, I talk about a framework for thinking about product management overall. Our job as product managers is to find and validate market problems, drive the creation of solutions to those problems, and help take the solutions to market. That encompasses really the full life cycle of successful products. There's somebody out there that needs some problem solved or some 
opportunity enabled. We can create some technology that will help them do that. And then we have to make sure that those people can find out that we have the solution and that our solution is a better alternative than their, a better choice than their other alternatives. So I also have another little saying that I've sometimes said, there's always product management. And what I mean by that is that we're always building something and there might've been a well-considered decision on what to build, or someone might just have said, hey, this would be cool to build and I'll build it. Now, I really think that in one sense, product management is at root level, the art of making a good decision about what to build. In fact, I don't think anybody would disagree with that. So the idea that you're gonna build something somebody's going to make a decision or not make a decision and something's going to get built anyway. That's sort of the, the background of this phrase, there's always product management, because there's always something being built. And did somebody make a good decision about it or not? So let's tie this all together. So consider a small startup, a company so small that it doesn't have a product manager on staff because it's not big enough, which means one of the founders is making these decisions or something like that. A metaphor that I kind of like, especially for a startup, is that you have a boat, and it's got a big engine, which is the dev team. And a lot of startups, it's all dev team. You know, there's very little other people, very few other people in the organization. So it's like a boat with a big engine. And if you turn that big engine on, the boat's going to go forward. It's going to go somewhere. The problem is, if there's nobody standing at the tiller, at the steering wheel, the boat might go around in circles, or it might crash into some rocks, or it might go out to sea, never to see land again, without someone at the tiller, it's probably not going to take anyone to a destination that's desirable. There has to be somebody who's done some amount of steering in order for the boat to be an effective way to get where we want to go. Okay, so let's move back to, let's move back to actual product companies. Software startups and other kinds of startups are kind of the same thing. There's always going to be some amount of product management. That's the person at the tiller making sure that you're generally going the right direction. But when you're in a little startup, you have to think about, well, what's the minimum amount of product management you really have to do? And so that's what we're going to talk about. Well, if you go back to my model, you have to be working on solving a market problem. You're creating a solution with your developers, but if you're solving a problem that nobody cares about, that's not going to be very successful in the end. And that's why you need to at least have done this piece of, well, let me find a market problem and make sure that somebody will pay for a solution to that. You don't need to do a big foo-for-all about it. You don't need to have a giant PRD, but you need to be working on solving a problem that people care about. You need to validate there are people out there in the market with this problem and that the people are willing to pay something for a solution that you build. Then, of course, you can build the solution. I'm not going to really go into that because, again, we've got this boat with the big engine. That's the development capability. And for a lot of founders, this is actually the easy part in some sense. It takes a lot of effort, but it's the part they like to do sort of the technology part. And a lot of founders are technologists, so they enjoy doing it, even if it's a lot of work. But then, of course, there's the part of going to market with the solution. And this is another part of the minimum effective dose. You have to make sure that there are people that have the problem, and you have to have some way to reach those people and tell them that you have a solution. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be a big marketing campaign. But you have to have some way of doing it. The minimum amount of stuff you have to do in order to achieve these components of product management well, you don't have to write requirements. You don't really have to have an agile backlog. You know, for a small company and a smart founder, they can probably keep it all in their head, at least for the first few months or even a year. You don't need all that ceremonial stuff like sprints and not even necessarily 
retrospectives, but you do have to have a market problem. That's one of the part of the minimum effective dose. You have to be able to define it and articulate it and know who has it to some degree. You have to know what the value of solving that problem is so that you can understand how much money you can make or if you can even make any money. And you have to have a way of taking that solution to market. You have to have a way of finding people that have that problem. And again, you don't have to have the most optimal way of doing that. You just have to have a way so that you can eventually, when you create your solution, sell it. So how do you, what's the minimum amount of work that you have to do to get those things? Well, you have to go talk to some people to find the problem. You know, maybe you don't even have to talk to that many people. You may even have a good idea yourself that you have to validate. So that's some amount of work. There's no question about it, but it doesn't have to be a huge amount of work. You just have to do it. And it's like the minimum amount of bodybuilding that you have to do to make changes in your body, although you're not going to become a, a famous bodybuilder. You know, and if you don't do that, the startup is like a boat that's going around in circles or it's about to crash into the rocks. So in terms of going to market, that can also be pretty simple. You know, you can do a Google AdWords campaign and drive people to your site and have them sign up. And again, probably not the most optimal way to do something, but it's a, a way that, that would work. If there's, if there's actually people out there that want the solution that you're creating, you can get to some of those people via a simple Google AdWords campaign or something like that. And you can offer the thing for sale on a simple web page and people can buy it. So again, a little bit of setup you have to do, but it's relatively minimal. And obviously, all these things I'm talking about, it's one of the reasons that people keep talking about how building companies is so easy nowadays, because all the things I just talked about are actually pretty inexpensive and cheap to do, you know, based on the internet and the web and things like that. So to summarize a long story that I just went through, that's what I think of as the minimum viable amount of product management. You have to know, know there's a problem, you have to have found a problem, you have to wait a have a way to take the solution to market, but that can be a very minimal set of activities. You just need to make sure your boat doesn't go somewhere useless. Now, I actually have a podcast episode about the five questions to ask about a new product idea, which basically encompasses this minimum effective dose of product management concept in a set of five questions. And you can find that at alltheresponsibility.com slash 311. An interesting episode. Now, let's change tack a little bit. I've been talking about the minimum effective dose of product management, I've discovered recently another minimum concept that I think is really interesting. And it has some, again, it's more of a thinking tool than maybe something you can actually implement. But it's a really powerful idea, and I wanted to share it with you. So I work in a big company, and as many of you who work in big companies know, there's lots of rules and lots of processes and lots of procedures. And a lot of times those rules have been created because of good reasons, you know? Like the processes are being put in place because, you know, something went wrong and somebody says, well, you know, let's put in a process to make sure that that bad thing doesn't happen again. You know, you also might be like my company is, you know, we have to conform to lots of regulations because we're in the HR space. We have to report to various entities. We're a public company, so we have SOX compliance, which is a sort of a business government, a business governance thing. Uh, there's laws and regulations you might have to comply with. We have a lot of those. And there's all those things that contribute to friction, basically. 
you know, it's very valuable to take a step back, though, sometimes and say, what is really the minimum set of rules that we need? Now, as I said, my company, we have a lot of rules at big companies. This is very common. And the reason you want to look at this is because as you get more rules, it gets harder and harder to move, to take action, to get things done, to take things to market, to move quickly. These rules all, as I said, add friction. And so one concept, and I've just learned about this recently, I think it's really fantastic, is called min specs or minimum specifications. And the definition of that, it's the smallest set of rules needed to do things in your, in your organization while still meeting its charter and its moral obligations and ethical obligations and business obligations if it's a business. Now, this idea comes from an organization called Liberating Structures. They do a lot of work with nonprofits and NGOs around the world, and a lot of their rules and methods are really focused on that type of small project-based organization or initiative. So it's a little bit of a stretch to apply it to a big public company like I'm talking about here. But certainly for smaller companies, I think a lot of these ideas are really powerful. Now, the quote from their website, which of course I'll link to in the show notes at alltheresponsibility.com slash 54, is unwittingly the conventional structures used to organize how people routinely work together stifle inclusion and engagement. Conventional structures are either too inhibiting, such as presentations, status reports, and managed discussions, or too loose and disorganized, like open discussions and brainstorms, to creatively engage people in shaping their own future. Now, that's a lot of big words, um, but I, it's not wrong what they said. So they've created a menu of 33 liberating structures to replace or complement conventional practices. And, and they're very interesting. So MinSpec is one of these. I think MinSpec, at a minimum, is a great thought experiment, you know, particularly given the experiences that I've had with too many rules and too much process in big companies that can really cause everything to slow down and in some ways to prevent innovation and make it hard to get value to market quickly. Obviously, we still continue to do that, but it, it's harder than it was when we were a little company, basically. So the idea of MinSpecs is to prune away the rules and perhaps improve some of the rules to eventually arrive at the minimum number of simple rules, the minimum specs that must absolutely be respected to deliver the organization's vision. And so the definition from the Liberating Structures site says, specify only the absolute must-dos and must-not-dos for achieving a purpose. Like the Ten Commandments, min specs are enabling constraints. They detail only must-dos and must-not-dos. You eliminate the clutter of non-essential rules, the max specs that get in the way of innovation. Often, two to five min specs are sufficient to boost performance by adding more freedom and more responsibility to the group's understanding of what it must do to make progress. So I think a lot of organizations would have a very difficult time doing this min specs exercise, but as a thought experiment, at least, it's really valuable. And I think if you have a mindset that there could conceivably be a small number of rules that would still allow you to deliver responsibly, it might enable you to work a bit differently. So that's the min-spec concept. I think it's really powerful, a very interesting thought experiment at, at minimum. Now, of course, the most familiar minimum for those of us in product management at the moment is the minimum viable product. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the minimum viable product, although there's lots of controversy and a lot of people don't understand it in what I believe is the correct way. So it's a term we hear a lot. It's also known as the MVP. And it is from a book. 
as you probably know, called The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. And the basic idea, what Eric Ries talked about is you're, when you're building a product, how do you learn early enough about your product, your market, etc., so that you can effectively apply your learning during the process of building the product itself? You have all these hypotheses about your product, about the problem you're solving, about your customers and what they need. You can, you can think of them as questions. And so you have all these hypotheses and questions, and you don't really want to have to build the whole product and take it to market to find the answers. You want to figure out what's the minimum amount of work I can do to get the answer to a particular hypothesis. Like, does anybody care about this idea that I have where, I'm going to build a, where I want to build a product for it? So that's what Eric Ries defined as the minimum viable product. The test that you build, the smallest amount of work necessary to build a test to answer a particular question or hypothesis. Now, I think in retrospect, it was a little bit of an unfortunate name because it has the word product in it. And because too often, the minimum viable product is interpreted to be a product that you can sell. This is what something executives love to do. You say, oh, I'm going to build an MVP, a minimum viable product about this hypothesis. And they say, oh, great, I want to sell that. And usually the fact is you can't sell an MVP that's built according to that definition. Unless, of course, the hypothesis of the MVP is we'll be able to sell this, you know. But in the original definition, an MVP doesn't have to be a product that you can sell. In fact, early on in the process, you might not even be confident that the problem you're solving is interesting enough that people will be willing to pay for a solution, and you might actually build an MVP to test whether people are interested. You know, you don't want to try to make something that you can sell until you have some evidence that people are actually interested in this problem that you're going to try to solve. So Rice, uh, Reese has a number of simple examples in the book. Uh, for example, he says, minimum viable products range in complexity from extremely simple smoke tests, little more than an advertisement, to actual early prototypes, complete with problems and missing features. In fact, he basically implies that even the most sophisticated of the MVP will have problems and missing features. And certainly he never says anything about an MVP being a thing you can sell, per se. He might say, oh, we're going to try seeing if people will give us money for this little bit of thing that we could build, and we're going to validate whether people will give us money for that. But it's a hypothesis. We think that people will give us money for this thing. So one of the things that he sort of intuitively bases these ideas on is that people don't just pay with money. People can also pay with attention. And that's why some of the early kinds of MVPs that you might do are things like a landing page where you try to get people to sign up. So if you have a landing page where you gather somebody's email, it's a way of learning if people will pay for an idea, at least with an email, because emails turn out to be a kind of currency. You know, you don't just give your email to anyone because you're likely to get spammed or whatever. You're just going to get a lot of email in your, in your inbox if you're not actually interested in the thing that the email is promising. And that's why if you have an idea for solving a problem, you can sometimes put a Google AdWords campaign up about your proposed solution. You can drive people to the landing page for that campaign. And the campaign and the landing page are going to talk about the problem that you might solve and maybe why your solution is better. And then it's going to say, if you're interested in getting our solution, get on our mailing list and we'll tell you when it's ready. Now, if you can get people to sign up on that mailing list, that's sort of a first level commitment from them. They're willing to pay a little bit, at least with a little bit of attention and their email address. 
And so this is the idea. And Eric Reese often uses that landing page example as a minimum viable product, as an example of a minimum viable product in his live talks. Now, the problem with minimum viable products is that a lot of times executives think, well, let's get that minimum viable product out to the market and start selling it. And that, of course, is not a good result because it will not be ready to sell. And if you do sell it, your customers will be super unhappy because it's not ready to go yet. And so that's really not the right usage of the term. There is an actual good term for that thing, which is a version one or maybe a beta, depending on how you think about these things. So... I often think if your executives are talking about a minimum viable product as something to be sold, usually what they're really talking about is a version one. And the rules for a version one are a little bit different. If you want to talk about a version one, the conversation is more like, what do I have to have in that version to be able to sell it? And when you're talking about selling, you need to be thinking the hypothesis is, I can sell this maybe for a profit and have happy customers. Because you don't want to start selling until your customers are going to be happy enough that they don't dump you and start talking bad about you all over town. And that's the way to differentiate version one from what is defined as an MVP, but what I would call a testable hypothesis. Of course, you do want to keep in mind that great quote from Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, who said, if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product, you ship too late. So definitely you don't want your 1.0 to have that much in it but it does have to be enough to satisfy at least some customers. And so even in the version 1.0, you're going to do something minimal, but it's not going to be quite the same minimal thing as an MVP, because again, an MVP can be nothing. So this MVP concept you can use across the whole development process where you're asking questions and you're doing the minimum amount of work to answer those questions. And again, that can often be a landing page. It can be a prototype. It can be a paper mock-up. You know, the things you go out, with and learn how people respond to what you're building using whatever tests you can build as inexpensively as possible. So there are three ideas about minimums for product managers. I talked about the minimum effective dose and how that applies to product management and really what the minimum effective dose of product management is, even if there is no product manager. I talked about the min specs concept, which is a way to help you think about removing some of the constraints that have built up over time in your organization. And in fact, the way the min specs concept is defined, you actually may need to add a constraint or two about the must-haves or must-dos in your organization that might actually be missing already. And then, of course, the minimum viable product and what it really means. So I always like to give you three things you can do to take action on these ideas. And making the types of changes that simplify your organization and simplify your rules, like the min specs, that's a very tough uh, thing to change. It's one of the hardest of the change management things to do in an organization. But I think you even so can use, make use of some of these ideas. And the basically your approach is going to be you're going to take little basic baby steps and you're going to use these kind of as mental models as opposed to things that you try to put into place concretely. So here's a couple things that I think will help and enable you to make use of these. First of all, I recommend not using the buzzwords, in particular, minimum viable product, because it gives people the wrong impression when you say product, people think they can sell it, and really the point of a minimum viable product is not selling it. So instead of the buzzword, use the actual activity that you're going to do. You can say, okay, we're going to build a little prototype to test this hypothesis. And you don't call it an MVP, even though that's exactly what it is. Then that's probably a better way to go about things. Because as soon as you start calling it an MVP, some executive is going to say, well, when can I start selling it? 
So the second thing, a tactic that you can use as well, which is to apply these ideas in your own work, even if you can't necessarily put them out in the organization. And this requires potentially some finesse, and you can't always do it. But what you do, what I often do is I, I take sort of a minimum viable product approach, a minimum effective dose approach, and even to some degree a min-specs approach to a lot of the work that I do, and then I map what I've done into the organization's model. So I do my, my own little work to try to achieve some velocity on my own, and then I figure out how to map that into the organization's model. And this is a tactic that allows me to have things go a little bit simpler, but then, of course, you have to know how to map it into the process, the overall organization's process. And sometimes that does actually mean more work for me, but I don't do that work at the outset. I sort of do it further down the line. So, for example, I put stories into my team's backlog, and then I tell my team, look at these stories and tell me what you think or give me your feedback. Let's start a conversation. And that's not really normally our process, which has a lot of stages where things have to be put into a sprint and they have to be the stories have to be groomed and things like that. So I kind of skip over some of that and then I backfill it. So I think that's a little bit of a better way to work. I don't do that in a huge way. I'm not like a guerrilla product manager in that sense. But And my goal, of course, eventually is to move us more toward a more flexible organization. That's going to take a lot of time and it's a lot of effort. But in the meantime, I'm kind of doing it a little bit for myself, having conversations before things start to get formal in order to make sure that I have good stories in the backlog that are worth prioritizing and so on. And it's not just stories that this applies to. Now, finally, I recommend taking a look at the Liberating Structures website. I talked about MinSpecs. It's particularly useful as a, as a mental model. And you can start with it, not for the organization as a whole, perhaps, but maybe for an individual project or an individual initiative in the organization. You know, think about what the minimum set of rules are that, need, that are needed to make sure that the project can stay on track, that it is ethically grounded, and that everybody can work together as a group in safety. And, of course, there's a lot of other of these liberating structures that are also worth looking at, and I recommend checking that out. So those are the recommendations. I hope some of those that are, are interesting and useful for you and maybe you can take action. I'd love to hear what you are doing to take action on these ideas. I will put a link in the show notes to the Liberating Structures website as well as a lot of the other things that I've talked about, the books, the Lean Startup book, and the 4-Hour Body book, which I think is a great book, although not really about product management. And I'll link to a few other related articles and books and podcast episodes that are related to these ideas of minimums and also to cognitive capacity management. I have a podcast about that as well. Those show notes are all at alltheresponsibility.com slash 54 in case you missed me saying that earlier. And I also will have in the show notes a link that you can click to review the podcast quickly and easily on a new site that's called ratethispodcast.com. And in fact, if you just want to go to ratethispodcast.com slash product, that takes you to the rating page for, for my podcast. And you can go and rate my show there, and I'd really appreciate it if you did that. On the show page, you'll also find links to subscribe to the podcast on all kinds of different players, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. Um, the great benefit of subscribing, if you're not already subscribed, is that you'll get new episodes automatically when I release them, which is usually, a, but not always, once a week on Tuesday or Wednesday, depending on how the weekend went. You can help others find the podcast, if you think that's a good thing, by rating it. That actually is one of the main reasons to rate it, is it makes the podcast more discoverable. And you can also click the recommend button in your podcast player if you if you have one. In Overcast, there's a little star, and that will help other product managers and innovators find the podcast. So it helps me out, and it spreads the word. 
And of course, you can also just send people an email typically about the podcast. There's more on the show notes page, how to get in touch with me directly, a comment section. I'd, I'd, if you want to leave a comment, it'd be great. Uh, there's a link to my book and a few more things. This has been episode number 54 of All the Responsibility, None of the Authority. And until the next episode, this is Nels Davis. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Ignition.